Brecht and Smet visiting scholar here at LSE, though this is the first time I'm really physically visiting uh, because of uh, COVID, so this is also for me an exciting uh, time. Uh, I'm a senior postdoctoral postdoc researcher and lecturer at Ghent University in, uh, in Belgium. And uh, since 2009, I've been researching social and political movements in Egypt through Gramscian uh, lens. So this conference uh, is really also a high point uh, for me. Uh, but there have been uh, enough uh, welcoming and thank yous uh, going around. So uh, I now give the floor to Patricia uh, Manduki. Who is Patricia Manduki? Um, <laughs> not yet, Patricia, sorry. Um, <laughs> Patricia is uh, an associate professor at, uh, in history of Islamic countries and contemporary history of Europe World at the Department of Political and Social Sciences at Cagliari University. Her research focuses on the political history of Arab countries, in particular Egypt and Tunisia. More recently, she focused on the reception of Gramsci and his ideas in the Arab world. Apart from teaching courses on Islam and the Arab world, she has coordinated multiple international research teams her latest project revolved around mapping Gramsci's thinking in the world, reception, translatability, theoretical, and praxis Gramscian variations. So Professor Manduki has published on a wide range of subjects, ranging from the work and life of Said Good, over the Egyptian student movement in the 20th century, to an analysis of recent Gramscian readings of revolutionary processes in Egypt and Tunisia. Patricia is also the director of the Interdepartmental and Multidisciplinary Gramsci Lab at the University of Kagiri. The Gramsci Lab is a center of excellent research on the figure and thoughts of Antonio Gramsci and their reception in the world and in various schools of thought such as post-colonial studies. As a laboratory, the Gramsci Lab aims to collect, catalog, disseminate and translate Gramsci's work, not only through publications, but also by offering training courses and workshops. So I think we now have a much more clear picture of uh, Professor Manduki and her work, and I now give the floor uh, to okay. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank the organizers, John, Sarah, Brecht, and Nadine Oroul, <laughs> for inviting me to this important conference focused on the spread of Gramsci's thought in the political debate on Middle East and North Africa. And thanks to Breck for this kind of uh, presentation. I'm very honored and a bit scared <laughs> to open these two days of work in front of such a qualified and large audience of scholars. First of all, I want to bring some greetings from Sardinia, Gramsci's land, from my Department of Political and Social Sciences, and from the Gramsci Lab, the Center for International Gramscian Studies of Cagliari University. Before starting, I have to apologize for two reasons. First of all, for my not-so-fluent English, which forces me to read these notes, although I promise I'll try to do my best not to bore you. The second and more important reason is, that, uh, is the fact that, as always happens, I had to make a choice for this speech. Um, I have to decide uh, from which perspective to introduce the topic of Gramscian analysis in and on the Middle East and North Africa. And I'm sure that you will quite understand if I am prevented from citing all the most important Gramscian topics in the contemporary debates or even the names of all the Gramscian scholars, many of whom are present here and who I'm quite sure will deal with these aspects in the best way during this conference. So, I decided in the first part of my speech, simply uh, to, to start simply, simply by talking by, about Gramsci. 
My choice is based on the belief that even if Gramsci is obviously not the only Western political thinker who has had a great influence on contemporary debate on the Arab world, and not only in the Marxist or leftist one, however, what is most surprising is his relevance for such debate, especially after the 2011 uprisings, a relevance that, in my opinion, must be underlined just starting our reflections on the political thinker, thanks to whom we are all gathered here. In the second part of my speech, I'd like to focus on why, when, and how Gramsci arrived in the MENA countries, and to discuss whether he actually acted in the past. And finally, if his work is still of help today in finding new interpretative keys for our questions and reflections. You understand me now, my English? <laughs> so, so, I know that this is certainly neither place nor time to introduce Antonio Gramsci. First of all, because everyone here knows who he was and where he came from. And secondly, because the main topic of this conference is not his human and political figure, but the analytical declinations and the various interpretations of his reflections in the Middle East and North Africa's political and intellectual debate. A discussion in which Gramsci has been quoted and used for decades to better read the historical, political, social events right up to the more recent facts. But, if it's generally true that the biography of an intellectual is important for the evolution of their thinking, this is especially true for Gramsci, whose life was not simply the life of any other intellectual or and political leader who lived and worked in Italy at the beginning of the 20th century, even though we are talking about a Marxist intellectual and a communist leader. There is no doubt um, that his uh, personal, intellectual, and political life is very special, even if his dramatic experience under fascism is not so different from the one experienced by many communist leaders, Italian intellectuals and political leaders, arrest on political charge, a mock trial, long prison sentences, that in jail. In my opinion, it is important here, as a brief introduction, to underline at least a few biographical notes. To better understand the specific context in which his thought developed, and at the same time to mention those Gramscian concepts and reflections most successfully spread in the MENA countries. First of all, the origins of Gramsci. He was born in 1891 in Ales and grew up not far from there first in Sorbono and then in Vilarza, which are all small, unknown villages in the center of Sardinia, a very beautiful island in the middle of the Mediterranean. It's my island, and I love it very, very much. But particularly at that time, a region that was very poor, economically little developed, and socially archaic and backward, a land that had been exploited for centuries by various forms of harsh colonization, with the last one, the Savoy dynasty, 1720-1861, imposing forms of economic exploitation and even racist policies similar to the ones enforced in the Middle East and North Africa countries during French or British or Italian colonization. Even though there were a few manifest signs of innovation and openness to modernity on that peripheral island, Sardinia was and still is, in a certain sense, very different and far from Italy. 
now we Sardinians even today call Italy the continent, another continent. <laughs> Grouchy, first of all, is a son of this land. One of its most famous and illustrious song, songs, as Eric Obsbaum called him in an interview entitled Caro Nino, Dear Nino. In that interview in uh, 2007, Obsbaum declared that without Sardinia it is impossible to understand Gramsci. Even if, he says, speaking to Gramsci, you were much more than a Sardinian, dear Nino. Some biographies place much emphasis on this strong relationship between the young Gramsci and Sardinia, and the importance that this peculiar geographical and cultural origin had on the development of Gramsci's thought. For example, the biography written, the first biography written by Giuseppe Fiori, published in 1966, or the more recent book by Gianni Fresu, published in, uh, in, 19, uh, pardon, in 2019, both translated into English. The first one, Life of a Revolutionary, by Verso, uh, in 1990, and the second one is forthcoming for Palgrave. In Italian, other recent and important biographies, which I hope will be translated into English in a short time, are Giuseppe Vacca, Vita e Pensieri di Antonio Gramsci, published in 2012, and Angelo Dorsi, Gramsci, a new biography, una nuova biografia, published in 1917. It is important, I think, to briefly mention also a considerable editorial project that is currently in progress in Italy. A group of scholars from Rome's Gramsci Foundation, that's the most important foundation, Gramsci Foundation in Italy, is completing, completing the national edition of all of Gramsci's writings, scritti di Gramsci, including the youth <coughs> writing, pre-prison and cultural, the notebooks and the letters. Now, getting back to the young Gramsci, the first point to underline is that uh, he lived in an environment that was certainly not easy for the formation of a young intellectual, even one who had a knack for study a context in which it was difficult even to get hold of a book, especially if you were poor, as poor as he was. His life began to change when he went to study to the capital city, Cagliari, which was at that time a lively Mediterranean town with commerce and administrative offices and an important university. The short period in Cagliari, three years, was an important stage in the young Gramsci's political education, not only because he lived his first experiences as a journalist, a young journalist, but above all, because surprisingly Cagliari at that time was a center for the dissemination of socialist ideas. In fact, in 1904, the very poor mining area of Bugerro in the south of Sardinia was uh, the trigger of Italy's first general strike, repressed by the army with the dead and wounded. An episode that was followed by several popular uprisings led by urban proletariat and miners, peasants and shepherds, in opposition to the capitalistic and often foreign bourgeois, which went on for years all over the island and even in the peninsula. In Cagliari, in a nutshell, Gramsci, who was a very good observer, became absolutely aware of the social distance between oppressors and oppressed. So, we can easily realize that at least two of the most peculiar and widespread Gramscian topics are strictly connected to his Sardinian origin and his first training period. First, the questione meridionale, the south, 
further question. And secondly, the concept of subalterns and subalternity. As for the former, in October 26, Gramsci began writing an essay, an essay which was to remain unfinished, titled Alcuni temi sulla questione meridionale, some topics about the southern questions. Question. This writing is very important in the context of the whole Gramscian production. It was the first writing in the form of an essay and not an article for a newspaper or a periodical. In this political writing, then, Gramsci had developed a specific interest in the southern question, not only as a personal fact, but mainly as a political one. Even if he is writing about the southern question as a man from the south, living among the contradictions of a very poor land, starting from this essay, he certainly developed and explicitly manifested this political awareness that the southern question represented a global aspect of the capitalistic evolution. Here Gramsci gives us insights on the reasons for the backwardness of southern Italy compared to the industrialized north, on the apparent inability of the south to emerge from underdevelopment, on the consequences of the economic imbalance, and in particular on the political responsibility for this detachment from modernity and progress. All this food for thoughts is the basis of a methodological approach, which far from being reduced to the analysis of Italy's social and economic situation at that time, is still absolutely relevant, in my opinion, for any debate about the Global South, including, of course, the Middle East and North Africa. Alongside and strictly linked to the questione meridionale, or better, questione meridionale, stands the centrality of the concept of subalternity in his political reflections, which derives once again from his personal experience and his capacity to observe and understand the iniquity at the base of capitalism and the harshness of workers' living conditions. In other words, his strong political revolutionary consciousness derives not only from his readings and studies, but also from his personal experience. First, thanks to his contact with the Sardinian peasants, shepherds, and miners, the poorest of the poor. And moreover, thanks to his contact <clears throat> with the other subalterns, the workers of the huge factories in Turin, where, Gramsci, where the political Gramsci, as a Marxist, socialist, and then communist, emerged, 1911-1922. <clears throat> <clears throat> it's not hard to understand why Gramsci's voice can still be heard today by all the subalterns in the world, and mostly by those in the Global South. A second biographical point of interest is related to Gramsci's theoretical Marxism, especially after his arrest on 8th November 1926, and during the last years of his life spent in prison until his death at the age of 46, on 27 April 1937. Gramsci is one of the founders of the Italian Communist Party in 1921, and he was both an extraordinary Marxist theorist and communist militant. But at the same time, his position within Marxism is peculiar. Very briefly, we can say that Gramsci was a dialectical Marxist who was able, for example, to free Marxist interpretations from a rigid economism 
focusing his political thought on the question of culture and the role of intellectuals in implementing a revolutionary process, which are, as you know, among the main topic, topics of the Gramscian political debate in and on MENA countries, as we will see later. <clears throat> but here, what is relevant for my speech is the fact that the Gramsci was a great opponent of that terrible political regime, Italian fascism, and that for Mussolini, he was, in quotation marks, a brain that had to be prevented from thinking for at least 20 years. As the fascist public prosecutor declared during the trial in May 1928, in which Gramsci was condemned to more than 20 years in jail, at the end he was hospitalized, hospitalized in his last years and officially released only a few days before his death. So, he lived the human experience of a long and terrible imprisonment made much harder by his health conditions. In the Sardinian language, we, he was affectionately called Su Gobedu, the little hunchback, is correct, hunchback. Um, but this nickname hit a very severe illness called POTS disease, which since childhood had caused him much suffering. Moreover, at that time, such an illness represented a taint, especially because of the severe physical deformation it caused. The disease made his life so difficult before and during the years in prison. Therefore, I think that this greatness, his greatness as a thinker, a philosopher, a politician, and a revolutionary, and his strength as a tireless communist militant stand out even more when compared with his physical weakness and his serious health problems. For this difficult and dramatic fate, he became an extraordinary iconic figure, a comrade for political prisoners in all the countries under repressive regimes, and first of all in the Middle East and North Africa, where, as you all know very well, thousands and thousands of inmates accused of political and opinion crimes are deprived of their rights by dictatorial, dictatorial regimes. But it is also necessary to point out that like every iconic figure, like every myth of our time, Gramsci has also been subject to the simplification of the global image market. And his face has become a well-known image alongside those of Che Guevara, Martin Luther King, Gandhi, and so on, often completely detached from his own historical, intellectual, and political relevance and complexity. What I want to underline here is that uh, it's important to try to know and understand Gramsci for his political value and the complexity of his thought, and not to use him only when necessary through some successful slogans. The third and last point of reflection about the link between Gramsci's life and thought is related to the prison years and to the elaboration of the most important and famous of Gramsci's work, the prison notebooks. It is well known that Gramsci started to write the 33 notebooks in February 29 in jail, and it is known also that these are the most used Gramscian source by scholars from all over the world. These small but precious notebooks, written in a prison cell, would have taken a long journey through, to, through time and space. But what exactly are the prison notebooks? They are certainly not a systematic work. In actual fact, Gramsci never wrote a book. 
but a great number of short uh, journalistic articles and writings before starting his prison notebooks. A short note, uh, partially translated, you all know, uh, uh, by uh, Quentin Hoare and Geoffrey Nowell Smith in 71 in their selections from the prison notebooks. And more recently, John Buttigieg began to fully translate the notebooks for uh, Columbia University Press since 1996 to 2007, when he prematurely died. So, uh, what exactly are the prison notebooks? Gramsci wrote them in a very difficult personal condition, isolated from the world and from political and intellectual debate, almost isolated from the world and from political and uh, intellectual debate, subject to continuous impediments by prison institutions and fascist, fascist censorships, censorship. The notebooks are neither a political or philosophical essay, nor a diary from prison and not even a series of chapters on certain topics. The very difficult conditions in which they were written should not be underestimated, underestimated by scholars or any other readers. The difficulty of having material at his disposal and even writing implements, the need to circumvent prison censorship, and finally, Gramsci's desperate need to make his brain work all these factors influenced the way in which he compiled the various notebooks. <clears throat> That's why the notebooks deal simultaneously with so many different topics. Thanks to Gramsci's great curiosity, surprising memory, brilliant method of thinking and writing, and above all, his iron will. The notebooks are thus a very peculiar kind of written text, which needs a special effort to be understood in a philologically correct way. Gianni Francioni, one of the most famous Gramscian, Italian Gram, uh, Gramsci scholars, coined the very appropriate definition, officina, that in Italian means workshop. Workshop because Gramsci's way of writing is a work in progress, where conceptual categories are continuously revised, completed, and or modified. Another very important Italian scholar, Guido Rivori, explained the notebooks have a fundamental diachronical dimension. That is, they are written over time and not revised for publication by Gramsci. And therefore, to be fully understood, they need to be read in close relationship, both with the very peculiar biography of the author and with the history of the great and terrible and complicated world, as Gramsci himself writes. They are also thought for praxis, for political action, as in the Marxist tradition to which Gramsci undoubtedly and integrally belongs. The prison notebooks, because of, or thanks to, the effort they require for their reading and understanding, became and still remain a source of inspiration and reflection for many intellectuals around the world in numerous research fields, political, literary, sociological, pedagogical, uh, anthropological, and so on. This is why I have chosen for the subtitle of this speech one of the Gramsci's famous statements. The same light beam passing through different prisms gives reflections of different light. Thanks to this multiplicity of analytical perspective, perspectives, Gramsci's notebooks became so widespread. The Gramscian bibliography, as you know, started by the American John Comet in 1991, now counts over 20,000 uh, titles, 
this huge amount of academic, scientific, and or militant contributions in many languages from every continent makes Gramsci perhaps the most popular Italian essayist in the world. Outside of Europe and uh, or the USA, Gramsci theories have been studied and used particularly in Latin America, and mainly in Brazil, and in India, or better, the Indian subcontinent, with the so-called subaltern studies. Following in this direction, in order to explore Gramscian studies outside Europe, with particular regard to the south of the world, the Gramsci Lab, our center of international Gramscian studies in Cagliari, began its activities at the end of 2014. Our small center of international Gramscian studies. <laughs> From the very beginning, the Middle East and North Africa have had a special interest for us and mainly for me, because of my specific expertise in studies focused on the Arab and Islamic world. This is why I would like to conclude now my speech by sharing with you a few considerations on the translatability of Gramsci's thought in the Middle East and North African region. I told you before that I could speak about why, when, and how Gramsci's theories arrived in the Middle East and North Africa. The first references to Gramsci <clears throat> can certainly be dated in the 70s, not only because the first English and French translations made him known to Arab scholars. For example, the translation um, uh, by Quentin O'Hare, Geoffrey Nobel Smith, that was translated in, in 1971, or the French uh, Gramsci Présentation Show de Texte Biographie Bibliographie by Tégé in 1966, or Kamet Gramsci and the Origin of Italian Communism in 1967, or Piot La Pensée Politique de Gramsci in, in 1970. So all these books are very important to uh, the spread of Gramsci thought. But uh, not only for this, uh, this date is important, this decade is important. But probably because he came, he arrived in the Arab world, so to say, at the right time, <laughs> it was a moment of a deep political and economic crisis in the Arab world. A crisis due to the persistent dysfunctions still deriving from the legacy of the colonial experience in weak young Arab states facing the economic, the economic and cultural imperatives of the great pow world powers. It was also a moment of a harsh cultural crisis, because the secular and progressive ideologies, pan-Arabism, Nasserism, third, world, third Worldism, Socialism, the various local nationalism, which had almost monopolized the Arab political debate for at least two decades, the 50s and the 60s, were forced to deal with the rebirth of the so-called political Islam, the Dawah of the Muslim Brotherhood, the subterranean dissemination of Wahhabism, and finally, later on, the aftermath of the Iranian Revolution in 1974, 79. <laughs> uh, 79. The Tunisian Tahar Labib, for example, <clears throat> states that the Arab Gramsci has the same age of intellectual defeatism. Albeit gradually and sporadically, Gramsci thought comes into play in this difficult transition from a cultural paradigm to another. In that period, intellectuals and academics 
who seemed to be much more interested in Gramsci than members of leftist political parties at that period, to tell the truth, focused their analysis on the concept of Haimana, hegemony, or Tabaia, subalternity, or Takafa, culture, intellectual, intellectuals, Mutakafun, and their political role, intellectual and their political role in civil society, all concepts involved in Gramsci thought in a revolutionary political discourse. Gramsci's <clears throat> distinction between organic and traditional intellectual is thus the most important key concept in the first period of diffusion of Gramsci thought in the Arab world. In other words, Gramsci's concept of the organic intellectual close to popular culture and popular feeling but also politically engaged in a revolutionary project, offered the leftist Arab intelligentsia a helping hand in fully rethinking their role in society. I want to quote uh, now an Algerian sociologist and writer, Ali El Kenz, a Gramscian uh, scholar, that wrote <coughs> in 1994, in Gramsci dans le monde arabe, a very useful book uh, about uh, um, this point, this topic. In the, Arab, in, in the Arab cultural context, where even leftist intellectuals seem themselves as part of the elite, this Gramscian ethic of militant, of organic intellectual, is a real revolution. It will it will be well received and bring many of these intellectuals to a sort of deconstruction of their relationship with the people and with the society. Russian food for analytical thought about the topic of intellectuals inspired a great number of Arab thinkers, most of whom lived in Europe, such as the, uh, the Egyptian Anwar Abdel Malek, the, the Moroccan Abdallah Rui, or the, in the United States like the Palestinian Hisham Sharabi and finally Edward Said, or others in their world like the Tunisian Tahar Abib and another Palestinian scholar, Faisal Darash, to name only the best known. Those were the forerunners, and even if some of them have not always completely assimilated Gramsci, they were certainly the ones who have paved the way. In the same period, just as in other parts of the European and extra-European world, a number of publications focusing on Gramsci and his thought began to circulate in the Arab world, albeit with different analytic, analytical perspectives. Among the, the publications of, uh, of this period, there are six volumes in Arabic, five anthologies and the translations of Jean Marc Piot's work on Gramsci's political thought that I mentioned before. This first Lebanese period, Lebanese because almost all the books were published by Beirut's Dar Atalia publishing house, was followed by the translation of Kamet's biography in 1984 and the selections by O'Hara and Owensby in 1994. For example, uh, the first one, uh, um, Gramscian text uh, was Al-Amir Al-Adith, the modern prince, published uh, by Dara Talia in Beirut in 1969. And after this, Kadai uh, Al-Mahdiya Tarikiya, uh, question of um, historical materialism, and so on. But uh, obviously, as you all know, there are no um, co a complete uh, uh, translation in Arabic of the um, prison notebooks, for example. 
After the 70s, <clears throat> a second Gramscian moment in the, in the Arab world was at the end of the 80s. In the context of the difficult birth of a new Marxist political vision following the collapse of the Soviet Union, Gramsci began to be studied in Beirut, Cairo, and Tunis universities. International conferences were held in Tunis, in Cairo, in 1989-1990. The range of Gramscian categories used by Arab intellectuals expanded. A new political lexicon appeared in leftist Arab discourse, Al-Mujtam al-Madaniya, civil society, or um, the so-mentioned Haimana, hegemony, subalternity, uh, Tabaiya, uh, Akutla Tarikiya, historical bloc, uh, passive revolution, Taura <laughs> Sarbia, <clears throat> Falsafat and Praxis, Philosophy of Praxis, etc. And uh, overall, uh, the southern question, Arcadia, Janubia. <clears throat> Such concepts <clears throat> proved to be extraordinary keys to understanding the various Arab social cultural context, contexts. For example, <clears throat> Gramsci's reflections on hegemony made the intellectuals better grasp the question of Arab state's political future in terms of inability to exercise a real hegemony. Sorry. <clears throat> For example, Faisal Raj neatly sums up the point, and he wrote, hegemony, in the Gramscian sense, does not exist in our countries. The local state relies on repression, and the capitalistic system of the big cities approves and only supports repressive governments capable of maintaining some form of labor's division. This kind of double-edged coercion makes the national struggle for liberation a class struggle, and the class struggle a national one. He wrote it in uh, 1994. <clears throat> the widespread feeling of detachment, disaffection, disappointment towards the state and its theoretical construction encouraged, always in a Gramscian perspective, analysis on the new social actors, activists, students, politicians, human rights advocates, movement against gender discrimination, journalists, and so on. And a new interest in civil society, its protagonists, and its struggles. In short, in the 80s and, and 90s, the 80s and 90s are, above all, the period that saw in the Arab world the discovery and the usual concepts of like hegemony and civil society do a general stop on the slow path toward democracy caused officially by the rise of radical Islamism, Islamism with its outline of violence and terrorism. Finally, 10 years after the attacks of September 11 and their terrible consequences, the explosion of the so-called Arab Springs gave rise to a new Gramsci revival. Surprisingly, the Arab revolutions led first to a transformation of the whole South Mediterranean area, but soon after, they led to painful counter-revolutions, dramatic civil wars, and even more repressive and authoritarian regimes in power. Once again, Gramsci's perspective proves useful in reading this, the events that preceded and and followed the uprisings, especially with regard to the topic of revolution at Thaura 
and passive revolution, Athaura Salvia. Gramsci had already given us an extraordinary insights in Quaderno 3, uh, Notebook 3. He wrote, the crisis consists precisely in the fact that the old is dying and the new cannot be born. In this interregnum, morbid symptoms of the most bright kind come to pass. Surely you know, you know this uh, statement. So, <clears throat> so the latest generations of scholars are now engaged in a lively debate in which Gramsci is once again very present. In their critical reflections on revolutionary and post-revolutionary situations in Arab countries, <clears throat> lots of scholars make use of Gramscian categories, which entered common language and often political practice. In conclusion, why has Gramsci continued to be one of the most influential European thinkers from, for reading the Arab world since the 80s? Because his Marxism seems to be less dogmatic and more open, or because he gives a great importance to the national cultural context in an internationalist perspective, or because some of his analytical categories seem really suitable to read Arab contexts, or finally because Arab scholars take heart from Gramsci's thousand origins and life story from his specificity. All these questions remain open, but probably have a positive answer. On the other hand, we can underline that using the Gramsci calls for a certain amount of caution in understanding the limits and expediency of his categories for reading the great and terrible world in a process that is and always has been dialectical between historicism and empiricism, between theory and praxis, perhaps the greatest lessons that Sardinian thinker imparted to human thought. I would like to conclude quoting another important Gramscian scholar, Giuseppe Vacca, who very effectively summarized my final thought. Gramsci was a, political, a politician, and the union of his work is to be found in politics. Even during the years of his imprisonment by the fascists, which damaged him and prematurely ended his life, Gramsci was a political fighter. But his thought transcends the historical political horizon of his time and the one in which they were originally, pardon, uh, pardon, the years passed and his works spread in cultural context far from the one in which they were originally conceived. The more his research asserts itself as a crossroads of the major questions of our times, the, di the dilemmas of modernity, the subalternity of peoples, the prospects of, of industrialism, the crisis of the nation state, the moral foundations of politics. Thank you.